So arbitrage can be a really, really great way to get experience and build some cash flow so that you can go buy assets that you own. So for me, arbitrage, it's it's not a bad idea by any means. It is, but it should be a means to an end. It should not be your end goal to have like 150 arbitrage units because you don't, you have very little control of your investment and uh, the goal should be to own. So arbitrage is more of a way to make a job for yourself. Whereas owning a property as a short-term rental is more of a way to build wealth for yourself. What's going on guys. This is the passive wealth strategy show. The show that will help you escape the wall street casino and build wealth on main street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Avery Carl. And today we're talking about short-term rental investing digging into her experience as a short-term rental investor, then also learning a number of lessons around finding short-term rentals, managing short-term rentals, building systems around them, how to evaluate them, and so much more. Short-term rentals are very popular these days, and there are a lot of folks out there having success with them. So I'm excited to bring this knowledge to you today and have Avery on the show. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially interested in investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call with me, and I'll look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcast. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Appreciate you guys tuning in for this interview with Avery Carl. Without any further ado, here we go. Avery, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to dig into short-term rentals here. If you wouldn't mind, please tell us about yourself and your business and your background and what you do in uh, short-term rentals. Yeah. So I am a real estate investor. I own 189 doors, eight of which are short-term rentals. And I was able to scale from zero to 189 over the course of about five years because five of my first six investments were short-term rentals. I'm also the CEO and founder of The Short-Term Shop, brokered by eXp Realty. I have to say that or else I get in trouble. (laughs) And uh, we are a real estate team that specializes in, surprise, short-term rentals. And we have offices in 11 markets and seven states. And we work exclusively with short-term rental investors. And we also teach them how to self-manage once they buy their property with us so that they don't have to leverage a property manager for 25 to 40% of their gross income. Awesome. Cool. So you mentioned that you're able to scale to that number of doors because your first, most of your first initial investments were short-term rentals. Why? How did that, how did that help you? Kind of happened by accident. Uh, So (laughs) short-term rentals just have a lot heavier cash flow than traditional single family long-term rentals. So because five of our first six had that heavy cash flow, we were just able to grow much more quickly than if we'd started with traditional long terms, which we actually did start. Our very first property was a long-term rental. And we landed on short terms kind of out of necessity because we figured, okay, this first rent check, this is awesome. We want to do more of this. We want to build a business out of this. So what do we do next? And we only had enough capital for the down payment of one more single family home. So we didn't have enough money to go out and buy like a hundred unit multifamily. 
And so we said, well, what can we buy that's going to make us the most amount of money, the fastest, so that we can then go buy more faster? And we landed on short-term rentals. Uh, We were living in Nashville at the time. And so we didn't want to do it there because the regulations were just constantly changing. And uh, it was really volatile Mm -hmm. uh, environment for short-term rentals. So we said, well, where can we buy something that it's a normal thing for people to just go to that place and stay in a house or a condo or a cabin rather than a hotel? And we'd just been on vacation to the Smoky Mountains a few hours east of Nashville a few weeks before that. And I said, well, we stayed in a cabin. Everybody stays in a cabin. Somebody owns those cabins. Why can't it be us? So we kind of looked into that and the rest is history. (laughs) Awesome. Great. So there are a lot of directions that we could take this, but you, you touched on that initial first kind of market that got you started. And and I'd like to learn about picking a market for a short-term rental because there are a number of vacation markets out there. You mentioned Nashville has had a lot of regulations back in the day. And as I understand, I think they still do. But more generally, how do you you pick a market to target for a short-term rental? So uh, for me, and there's obviously more than one way to skin Mm -hmm. a cat, but for me, I focus on regional drivable vacation destinations. So areas that are tourism dependent. So lots of tourism coming in, but the majority of the tourism is not flying in, it's driving in. So uh, the markets that I own in are the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, the Emerald Coast in Florida. So like like the Destin 30A area, and then the Forgotten Coast in Florida on Cape Sandblast. So these are areas that have the most, so I call them mature vacation rental markets. So mature vacation rental markets and regional drivable vacation destinations typically have the most favorable regulations for short-term rental investors, because these are areas that don't have a lot of hotel presence. These are areas that it's been the normal thing for tourism since forever to stay in either a cabin, condo, beach home. So I'm sitting in in Destin, Florida right now. We had vacation rentals here before there was electricity here in the 20s. So um, because these areas are so dependent on vacation rentals rather than hotels, you've got got really favorable regulations and not a very low likelihood that they're ever going to regulate against them because the cities and counties are so dependent on the income from the local occupancy tax on them. So that's why I focus on the the mature vacation rental markets. And then the regional drivable piece is because those tend to be the most recession resistant. Nothing can be recession proof, obviously, but like take 2008, for example. So people couldn't necessarily afford, since that was financially driven, couldn't necessarily afford to fly to Mexico to go to the beach or fly to Aspen on a on a uh, mountain vacation, but they could drive to their closest regional beach. So, you know, they could drive to Panama City or drive to the Outer Banks or drive to the Smoky Mountains or the Poconos or the Catskills, depending on where they live. So you're insulated from financial economic factors. And then also with COVID, same thing. Uh, It wasn't that people couldn't afford to fly during COVID. It was that they didn't want to, they didn't want to be in an enclosed space with people, but they were still dying to get out of their houses. So they drove to places they could go on vacation within, you know, eight, 10 hours of their house at the most. So I focus on those types of markets because they're not as easily affected by economic factors. Nice. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned COVID as well, because yeah, people were just concerned about flying, even though folks were, many folks were working from home and still able to work. They just didn't want to get on a plane, get in your car, go drive there. So that I I love that logic. I, I also wonder about the numbers and assessing, you know, your rents, what your vacancy might be. And then also the, 
the like seasonality of it, right? Because if you have just one vacation season in an area, you got to get a huge percentage of your revenue in just a handful of months, which, which, you know, is a little bit concerning from a risk standpoint. So tell us about that and running the numbers. Yeah, yeah. So there are a number of data sources that you can use to get market-wide short-term rental data. So I recommend using those rather than going off of just the rental history for one property because mm-hmm. you don't the rental history for one property is essentially a one random data point whereas if you're buying market-wide data, you're getting the full picture of the entire market and not just what one random property manager was able to do with one random property. <laughs> so uh, there's a few places you can get that. AirDNA is one. Rabu is another. Also, Price Labs, which is a pricing tool for after you already own your property, they have a cool function called the market dashboards. And it shows a cool like 30-day snapshot of how properties have been doing. Uh, so you want to lo- use as many market-wide data points as possible and kind of come up with an average from there. In terms of seasonality, so that can be a little misleading. So the Smoky Mountains, for example, is pretty much a year-round market, whereas Destin, where Florida, where my other properties are, it's seasonal because everybody comes to the beach here. It's kind of the opposite season of South Florida. Everyone comes to the beach here between March and the end of October. So my Smoky Mountain property, so I've got two that are the same size, a four bedroom in the Smokies and a four bedroom in Destin. Uh, And I paid roughly the same amount for each, bought them the same year. Their expenses are really similar. And the Smoky Mountain property has like an 87, 90% occupancy rate. And the Destin property has a 67% occupancy rate. So you would think, oh, I'm going with that Smoky Mountain property all day long. But in reality, the Destin property made us $40,000 more last year than the Smokies property with a much lower occupancy rate. So occupancy rate is not the number one metric to look at. I would say the gross annual income is the number one metric to look at. And then obviously work back from there for your net. But um, occupancy rate, going straight off occupancy rate can be a little bit misleading. Okay. Okay. Great. So you mentioned you also help train investors or or people that buy uh, short-term rentals through you on you know, self-managing. So can you tell us about that? And then I also want to get into common misconceptions that you run into that, that clients have. So let's start there with learning about self-managing. Yeah. Yeah. So any client that buys a property with us in any of our 11 markets, we have a whole back-end training program where we teach them everything they need to know about managing their property remotely so that they don't have to hire a property manager that cuts significantly into your cash flow. So short-term property managers are not the same as long-term. Like all of my long-term doors, all 180, I mean, sorry, yeah, all 181 of them have a a manager, different beast. Short-terms, we self-manage all of our own short-terms just because the price for what you're getting is not really worth it. So the way technology is right now, there's you really just need two or three tools. You need a property management software that automates a lot of things for you. And then you need a pricing tool. And you really don't like a property management company. I'll just add some context here. So <laughs> typically the the average cost of short-term property management is 25% of your gross. If I had paid a property manager that last year, I would have paid a property manager $200,000, which (laughs) (laughs) as real estate investors, we have better things we can do with that money Mm -hmm. than, uh, you know, pay somebody to do something that can mostly be automated from our phone with, you know, a few text messages a day from us personally. So um, that's why I recommend that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And, you know, something that also just came up in my mind is... Uh, a strategy that was very popular for a number of years and probably still is was the 
the short-term rental arbitrage model, but you know, you're helping people buy the properties and not do arbitrage. So can you tell us about the relative strengths and weaknesses of those? Because I think we still have arbitrage investors out there looking to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So arbitrage can be a really, really great way to get experience and build some cash flow so that you can go buy assets that you own. So for me, arbitrage, it's it's not a bad idea by any means. It is, but it should be a means to an end. It should not be your end goal to have like 150 arbitrage units because <laughs> you don't, you have very little control of your investment. And uh, the goal should be to own. So arbitrage is more of a way to make a job for yourself. Whereas owning a property as a short-term rental is more of a way to build wealth for yourself. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And I also find it notable that I don't have the numbers in my head, the breakdown of your your personal portfolio of long-term versus short-term rentals. But just based on the numbers, it sounds like you have significantly more doors that are long-term rentals versus short-term mm-hmm. rentals. And I'm just curious about your you know uh, decisions or, or, or mm-hmm. value judgments that went into laying out your portfolio that way. Because I, I would imagine if you wanted to have much heavier weighted toward short-term rentals, you could accomplish that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So number of doors wise, it is very heavily long term weighted. But in terms of dollars invested and equity, uh, it's actually about half and half short term and long term. So Mm -hmm. you know, my short terms are the average value of them right now. Well, probably the least expensive one that I own the value would be probably 450. And then we go on up to 1.6, 1.7 million. Whereas my long terms, can be anywhere from like 70 to 100,000 a door. So it's really the short terms, a good short term in a vacation market is going to be significantly more expensive than, you know, one door of a 25 unit apartment building in the Midwest. Yeah, no, absolutely makes a lot of sense. The short term rentals tend to be much higher ed and much more expensive areas. You got to furnish them, you got to take a lot more care mm-hmm. of them. Whereas a long term rental, you're, you're going after much more affordable units and there's a lot less for for you to do about that. So to kind of get back on track of what I've been thinking earlier, it are common misconceptions that you run into, okay. you know, with uh with clients just regarding short-term rentals in general. What do you run into there? The biggest one is people think that they either have to live near the property or they have to have a local like property management company to handle everything. So and that's just kind of a mindset thing. So you know, if, if a toilet breaks in one of my places in Tennessee, I'm going to do exactly the same thing as if a toilet breaks, you know, 10 feet behind me is I'm going to call somebody because I don't know how to fix a toilet. So <laughs> whether I'm standing here looking at it and can touch it or whether it's, you know, a thousand miles away makes no difference in how I'm handling it. So um, it really is just a mindset thing. Interesting. Okay. So I do wonder how people perform when they are say on the other side of the country, maybe you have investors, you know, coming from California or whatever who are oh, yeah. buying in Florida or Tennessee. How do they, you know, end up handling that? And and how much of a how much of a job is it for them really? Or, you know, in terms of hours per door, per month, or however you want to break it down. Yeah, it's definitely not as passive as long-term rentals, but it's also lucrative. So it's kind of the trade-off. And the really you just need two core team members to start off. And that's your your housekeeper and your handy person. So, um, you know, if, if a toilet breaks, your ho- either the guest is telling you or the housekeeper is telling you. Like, if there's a leak all over the floor, if the guest isn't seeing it, the, the housekeeper will see it when they come in to to clean the place. And then you'll, I like to keep a list of like five handy people, so I can call my favorite one first. And if they're not 
available, then I can just go down the list and get it out, get somebody out there as quickly as possible. So it's really just building a good team and being able to depend on that team uh, to do a good job, which is another reason why the regional drivable markets, mature markets are really good for this because up until 10 years ago, there was still a huge short-term rental industry, but it was all managed by big local property managers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the infrastructure is already there with the cleaners and the handymen. That's been an industry forever. And whether they were working for big property management companies or now working for independent owners, it's the same process that's been there forever. Whereas if you're buying in a metro market, and vacation rentals are kind of a new thing. You might be having to find a housekeeper who's used to doing someone's primary home once a week and having to train them and explain to them what needs to be done to turn a short-term rental. So that's why I like to stick to that type of market as well, because the infrastructure and the workforce is already there and knows what to do. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I remember I remember when I was a kid, we would go to the, the beach and my parents to find the the beach house we'd stay in would you know get one of those like books and have to leaf through it and figure out which one was the right fit. Times have really changed, but people were still going on vacation back then. I guess I'm, I'm dating myself in a way. So also, uh, I want to dig into the business systems around that. So you mentioned the, the two team members that you need, but what are the, the, the systems? You mentioned you can run a lot of it from your smartphone. So there's probably apps or, or whatever. What are some key systems or tools that people need to have in place? Sure. So you obviously have to have an Airbnb and a VRBO account. Uh, then the tools that you need, the two main ones are a property management software. So uh, there are several of them out there. I use one called Guesty. It used to be called Your Porter. Uh, there are some other ones, OwnerRes, Hostfully, a few other things. And what that does is it's a dashboard. So it brings... If you have two or three listings and you're listing those two or three properties on two or three different booking sites, you know that's a lot to keep keep track of. So What property management software does is it brings all of those listings across all of those platforms into one dashboard. So if you need to make an edit on one property, you need to add something, change a photo, you just change it in one place and it changes everywhere. Uh, Also, what it does is there's a lot of automation you can set up in terms of responding to your guests to make sure that you're you're responding immediately because where you are in the search results on the platforms has a lot to do with how fast you respond to the first message that they send you. So if it's automated, you're you're hitting that uh, algorithm, and then also it answers a lot of the questions. Once you've had you know five guests, you kind of start to learn. Okay, every single person is going to ask this question or these five questions, so you can go ahead and get that in your first auto response. So they already have those answers. And it also will automatically send them their check-in instructions the day before check-in, automatically send them their checkout instructions the day before checkout. And so when I started, there wasn't really anything like that. So every single day we had to look and say, okay, we have five properties. Is there somebody checking in tomorrow? Okay. We have people checking in tomorrow and two of them, we need to send them both messages. Uh, so that it's you know really made that a lot easier. And then the other really cool thing that it does is that they sync with your cleaner's calendar. So anytime anybody books on any site, it automatically syncs with your cleaner's calendar and says, hey, you need to clean on this day. So whether they're using iCal, Google, um, Outlook, anything like that, it's automatic. Whereas again, when I started at the beginning of the month, I had to look at all the properties and write down every single day that they had to clean. And I would send it to her in two different formats. So there was no way anything could be missed and human error things still get missed. So the automation is really, really nice. So that's your property management tool. The second big one, you need a dynamic pricing manager. Price Labs is the one that I use. 
but there are others, uh, Wheelhouse, Beyond Pricing. Price Labs is the most user, user-friendly, I think. And what that does is it's constantly analyzing past and current booking data in the market that you're in. So, you know, if there's if it's a certain time of year or if there's an event this week that you know maybe you didn't think about, it's looking at what other people's pricing is doing and has done in the past and automatically prices you at the highest price it thinks you'll be able to get. So again, that didn't exist when I started and our income went up about 20% when we went from manual pricing to using that. So those are the main systems that you need. And then in terms of smart tools in the house, uh, you need a smart lock. So remote Wi-Fi lock, smart thermostat, and like a, a ring digital doorbell camera or something sim- similar. Okay. Things along those lines. And then you probably also need, you need to put internet in it and probably cable and oh, yeah. those kinds of things as well to like furnish it and all that. Yeah. So I, in the markets that I work in, typically since almost all of the real estate that's ever been traded has been vacation homes and vacation rentals, it'll come furnished. So if you buy in a again, regional drivable market, a lot of times they a lot of times they will come furnished. So you can knock that big line item off of your expense sheet. And then typically you can get away nowadays with just internet streaming services and not have to go full cable. But um just depends on on where you are. Gotcha. Okay. So a lot of folks that I talk with who are considering this strategy are first looking at it at, from the standpoint of Hey, my family and I like to go on vacations once or twice or a couple times a year to the Outer Banks or Florida or wherever. Wherever maybe we get a, a get a short term rental there, rent it out when we're not there, and then when we want to go, just you know, don't rent it out and, and use it. What do you think about that? Is it is that a smart way to go, or should folks just look at these as cash flow machines and go vacation wherever it makes sense? You know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, it's important not to get your emotions mixed up with your investments, but it's not a bad thing to use your common sense and say, is this a place I want a vacation? Yes. Okay. Other people probably want a vacation here too. As long as you don't get too wrapped up in like, oh, well, I don't like the way this countertop is and it's not going (laughs) to fit everybody in my family every Christmas. So as soon as you start like envisioning yourselves there for your really important holidays, that's probably when you need to draw the line and back up. Gotcha. Okay. And I would imagine there might be some strategy in there where you say, okay, the off peak season where it might has a high probability of being vacant. Maybe we go for a week there at that point, but we don't want to, we don't want to occupy it when it could be occupied generating a lot of revenue for us, right? We want to use it when it's not really in demand. That's probably a factor in there as well. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Very cool. So uh, last question before we go on to uh, the three questions that's every, everybody on the show is who is right for this strategy or rather the other way around? Who is this strategy right versus wrong for? When you speak with somebody, what are some key things that that they could say where you, where it hits in your mind? You say, OK, this is probably a good way to go for them versus now nah, this isn't this isn't right for this person. What are your thoughts about that? So typically people that are really looking to like bootstrap and really just squeeze every drop of cash flow out of a property, you know, somebody who doesn't necessarily have the huge budget to go buy a huge apartment building, uh, just kind of like I did. I had I could buy one single family home and that's what I could do. And so I was trying to find what I could make the most amount of money on. So um, typically people who are really try- in the scaling phase of their portfolio and people who are looking to diversify a little bit, you know, maybe they've got a lot of apartment buildings or a lot of single family long-terms and they want to diversify and um, get something a little bit different. We get a lot of high income 
earners who want to get that material participation for their taxes. And mm. so if you spend, I think it's over a hundred hours uh, on it, then they get that, those material, that material participation deduction. So it just kind of depends, but personality wise, somebody who is, has the ability to roll with the punches and be flexible is going to be someone who's a little more, or who's much more successful at this than somebody who's really rigid and everything has to fit in every little tiny box perfectly and is going to have a meltdown anytime something doesn't go exactly the way they planned. Uh, then that's, it's probably not for you if you're that person engineers come to mind <laughs> <laughs> fair enough as an engineer I, I might fall into that box i'm not yeah. i'm not so sure we have plenty of successful engineer clients but they do have a little bit harder time adjusting mm. gotcha okay cool right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor the first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth income spending and everything else about your finances you can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Avery, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I bought a four bedroom pool house in Destin, Florida, four floor box, four blocks, excuse me, from the beach that had been foreclosed on twice. Wow. Yeah. It did not need a full rehab. We didn't have to do any wall knocking out or building anything. It really just needed cosmetic. Half the floors were already done because the person who had it before us who bought it from the first foreclosure started to rehab and they actually did all the really hard stuff like the rotted walls and things before they got to the floors then they ran out of money and it got foreclosed on on them so we got a really great property that just needed paint floors and some kitchen and bathroom upgrades and that property is worth almost triple what we paid for it uh which was 650 back in the day so wow. and uh that's our also our highest performing short term rental awesome i would imagine you got that before COVID exploded yeah. prices. <laughs> yes. Nice. Nice. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I've done it a few times, actually. Uh, uh -oh. Anytime I've ever ventured back into the stock market, I, it ends up not going <laughs> how I wanted to go. And then I just like leave it or forget it. I've got a bunch of random little like investment portfolios just floating out there in space where I tried to do something. And then like, I was like, this is stupid. I'm not doing this and just left it. So any anything to do with the stock market has not worked for me. Yeah. Go sit down at the casino. That definitely might not work out. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, and the casino is a little more fun. <laughs> <laughs> they might, they might bring you drinks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? You're never going to wake up one day and say, I'm ready. I have all my ducks in a row. I'm ready to go. It's kind of like having a baby. Like you're never going to say, all right, I have everything perfect and we're ready to do this. It's you kind of just have to pull the trigger, go and learn as you go. You learn by doing, you're never going to wake up and say, okay, I've learned enough. Let's go. That is true. I think that, yeah, has occurred to me uh, in my life as well. Sometimes you just have to jump and want to thank you for joining us today, sharing all this knowledge with us. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more, anything like that, where can they track you down? 
You can find links to everything Short Term Shop at theshorttermshop.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling every time because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.